Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of the E-Commerce Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Curry, CEO of OMG Commerce. And today we're talking about a topic that is very, very timely for me anyway, and I think it will be timely for you as well. We're talking about the nuts and bolts of buying an e-commerce brand. Now, you've probably, if you're, if you're a frequent listener to the show, you know that my business partner, Chris Brew and I, we are actively looking at buying e-commerce brands. We're investing in a number of them, looking at buying others. And so this is a really interesting topic to me. I almost wanted to do this episode just to pick the brain of my guest, but we're, we're hitting record because it's going to be super valuable to each of you as well. And- This episode of the E-Commerce Evolution podcast is brought to you by OMG Commerce Resources. That's right. Here at OMG Commerce, we want to help make sure you're educated and in the know to capitalize on the latest tips, tricks, and strategies to help you grow your e-commerce business. So if you go to omgcommerce.com and under resources, click on guides, we have some cutting edge free information for you on things like how to dominate with Amazon DSP ads or how to use Amazon sponsor brand video ads and how to craft the perfect ad. We have several guides on how to capitalize on YouTube ads from creating the perfect ad to knowing when you're ready to scale. Plus there's the newly updated Google shopping guide plus more. Check it all out at omgcommerce.com and click on guides under resources. And now back to the show. My guest is Chris Yates. He's the founder of Rhodium Weekend and partner of Centurica. And Centurica, they offer buy-side due diligence for digital business acquisitions. Uh, We have a mutual friend, Joe Valley from Quiet Light Brokerage. Joe's a friend of the show, been on the show a couple of times. So Joe made the connection and Chris and I chatted, super, super smart guy. And so we're going to talk about due diligence and valuations and aggregators and tons of fun stuff going on right now in the land of M&A for D2C brands. And so with that, Chris, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on. Brett, thanks for having me. I'm honored you to invite me. Yeah, absolutely. So give us a little bit of background here, Chris. How, how does one get into the business of buy-side due diligence for you know digital businesses? How, how did you get here? Yeah, uh, so my story, I'll, I'll share it in brief, and then you, if you want to dive in, feel free. But um, I, I was buying online businesses back in the early days, 2009, 2010, I uh, did that for a few years, found it actually pretty isolating living in Montana and, and not being able to find other people who could speak the same language. So I started a conference in uh, in person in Vegas in 2012 and have done that annually since then and built a community around that. And that's what Rhodium is. Uh, in After doing that for a few years, one of the attendees slash speakers of the event was the original founder of Centurica. And he approached me in 2015. Uh, he said, Chris, there's two people in the world I'd sell this company to, and you're one of them. Would you want to do a deal? Nice. So I ended up acquiring Centurica in uh, 2015. And then from there, we've uh, I brought on my business partner, Brian, and we've grown it um, you know, consistently since then. Where it's at today is uh, we primarily work with funds uh, such as the aggregators and things like that, as well as individual entrepreneurs who are doing acquisitions of e-commerce, content, SaaS, uh, and you know, kind of digitally focused service businesses. So we do the uh, risk assessment, if you will, make sure that you're not buying a lemon. 
Yeah, I, I love this so much. And, and just a couple of things. We'll talk about Rodium Weekend a little bit later, but uh, you are right that, that even just being an entrepreneur, being a digital entrepreneur, being a, a D2C e-commerce brand opener, it can a brand owner, it can be isolating. And especially in kind of a COVID slash post-COVID world, right? We're all isolated. And so having these communities where you can gather together virtually or, or now, you know, we're getting back together in person is awesome. And, and I found a lot of the breakthroughs from my business and breakthroughs for just my way of thinking have come from these events. So we'll definitely I want to dig into to Rhodium Weekend here in, in just a little bit. Uh, and, and so uh, I want to get in. I want to make sure this is very actionable, very, very practical. But as, as my business partner and I, we've, we've started digging into, hey, we want to buy a brand. And so we've kind of built criteria and you know, we're, we're evaluating some different brands looking to buy. But it's tricky, right? And you, you hear all these horror stories of people that buy a brand, they spend a lot of money, it all falls to crap, you know, it all it all just blows up. And and so that that can kind of shy people away from mergers and acquisitions and and from you know growth through acquiring and buying brands. But when you get it right, this can be absolutely awesome, right? So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the due diligence phase. Cause I think I think this is likely, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong because you're the expert here, this is likely where a lot of people get it wrong, right? So, so what are some of the mistakes that you see buyers making in the due diligence phase? Yeah, and you mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not wrong, but mm -hmm. I will say that before you get to due diligence, there should have been a lot of things that happened that will set you up for success, including having your, your ability to operate these businesses really dialed in. Uh, at the end of the day, the buying is not actually the hardest part. It's what you do after buying it. So it's the, in it's the integration said, of your current business and the new business and the operation of it. Yeah, totally makes sense. And this is one thing we're thinking through too: is like, how do we set the criteria so that we know, like, hey, when we buy these brands, we're going to be able to leverage them and grow them and operate them and, and all those things. And so I think maybe that the first step is that, right? Yeah, it is. And and the same business in two different operators' hands could have very different outcomes. And I think it's important to just make sure that, um, you know, <laughs> if you're new to the game, uh, that's when you can really have uh, have some challenges. And so those who are seasoned are a little bit more strategic in their thinking of acquisitions. The biggest challenge you'll run into is just finding one that's going to fit your very specific criteria. So uh, so there's challenges on both sides, not, not that they can't be overcome. But um, so in terms of due diligence, just to make sure people understand, that starts once you've agreed on price with the seller, typically. Commonly, you know, you'll go through a process of, of a few introductory calls with them. You might read over a prospectus if it's a broker. Uh, if the seller's doing it themselves, they may have prepared some materials for you to review. And essentially what you're doing prior to starting due diligence is you're taking the seller at their word. And you're asking them the questions that you need to know in order to, number one, value this business. And number two, decide, is this the right business for me to buy? And you and you you can't really get into the weeds before you know coming to to a price. So yeah. just understand that you're taking the seller at their word, and they're making a bunch of claims. So your process of due diligence is really verifying those claims and getting more into the weeds to better understand the business. I love that. And so actually, and maybe maybe we should back up because we talked about criteria and we kind of brushed over it. Any any tips or suggestions you have on that end? So getting really dialed into criteria. Uh, knowing what we're looking for, knowing how to kind of make those pre-evaluations before we get into price and then true due diligence. Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, I can give some. <laughs> I, I can give you two really easy criteria that I think won't steer you too wrong. Number one, don't buy something that you wouldn't feel comfortable telling your innocent, your most innocent niece that you own. 
So it's when you get into those kind of gray areas of business models. And, you make a lot of money, but <laughs> yes. hopefully no one knows about this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that will steer you um, properly. For, and this is just your first acquisition. Again, you know, the rules are meant to be break, broken, but I'm just talking about the first time acquisition. Two is don't buy something that's on the decline, whether it's the traffic or the revenue. Sometimes it's not always obvious that it's actually declining until you get the monthly numbers. Sometimes people talk about annual numbers. And when you look at the trailing three months or six months or something, they ran out of stock and they're, you know, things are going really badly. So um, that's the other one. And the reason I say that is it's hard enough to take over an existing business, learn that business, be able to maintain where it's at now, doing all the things that the old seller was doing while also trying to turn that business around. So uh, just being able to operate it at, you know, kind of the the point where it's at now is, is a challenge. But being able to turn a business around with major problems while trying to also learn the business and all the nuances, you know, I haven't seen that go well for first-time buyers commonly. So those are two basic rules of thumb that I would start with. I love that. And, you know, there are some people that are, that are great turnaround specialists, right? Like that, that's their thing. They buy a distressed business and they know how to unlock the value and the potential and turn it around. But if that's not you, and that usually comes from lots of lots of experience, if that's not you, don't buy a business that's on the decline because, as you said, integrating and learning the nuances and operating is hard anyway. And, and so learning that and fighting a decline is all, all the, the more difficult. Yeah, and, and it's hard because you look at the multiples on some of those businesses and you might be, oh, I can pick this up for 2x the annual profit. Um, you know, but if if the run rate were to continue, that 2x pretty quickly looks much more, much more, much worse. And you have this idea of all the things you can do for the business to turn around and things like that. But um, so I think that's more of an advanced strategy for those who have some experience and some deals under their belt. Um, and, and that is a fantastic opportunity if that is truly something that gets you excited. Got it. So we've we've made this we made this evaluation and, and and like I mentioned before, you know, OMG is we're looking at buying some brands or rather it's it's Chris, my business partner and I. You know, we want to buy brands that we we feel passionate about, that we feel like our marketing expertise and management expertise we can we can really help leverage. And so then we we see that it's on the 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 incline, not the decline. We're we're happy to tell our niece or our daughter about uh, this brand. So we get to that point, we agree on a price. Now let's talk due diligence, because you're right, we're take, taking the, the the seller at their word. And, you know, a lot of good sellers out there that aren't trying to, you know, blatantly lie. But uh, we are all trying to put our best foot forward, right? So so there there needs to be some due diligence here and not just taking the the seller at their word. So so talk us through then what are what are some of the mistakes that, that people make during due diligence? Yeah, so I, you know, it's the, the old adage, uh, trust but verify. Um, and yeah. there are people who are intentionally misleading you, but more often than not, it's just mistakes that they missed or maybe they embellished a little bit <laughs> about about an issue that's actually there. And um, one of my friends, Mike, he, he says, I know there's a meteor coming at this business, otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't be selling it. So it's my job to find out where that meteor <laughs> is, when it's going to hit and how to avoid it getting hit. Yeah. So. Um, so that's just your, you know, that's just part of the game. But in terms of the process, you know, we've done this hundreds of times um, and we found that there's a logical phase to go through in due diligence. I will also say that every seller is a little bit different and some of them are much more guarded with their information early on. Uh, and so I will say that, you know, you can't always follow this exact process, just depends on the seller and how comfortable they are with you and, and the ability to open up kind of the kimono, so to speak. 
Um, general rule of thumb would be for due diligence, start with the least sensitive stuff first and then get to the more, most sensitive stuff closer to closing. Um, but if the seller is willing to just open the kimono, this is kind of the process of how we do it. Number one, we start with the financial verification. And that just means going to the original sources of the revenue and, and, and expenses. Uh, that might be you know, access to the Amazon account. It might be uh, supplier invoices from their recent purchases. Uh, it might be looking at their payroll reports from Augusto or something like that. <clears throat> Getting all that original source data and comparing it to what they've claimed on their PL. Uh, and that process, why I think it's important to start with that is because if the numbers don't line up, it's really hard for any of the rest of this to really matter. Uh, and if they don't line up, it, it, usually one of two things will happen. Number one will be that you'll walk away from the deal because it's you don't trust the person any longer. Uh, but more often than not, it's just a simple adjustment to the purchase price, kind of using the same multiple that you went in with. And if you found a mistake or something like that, you just adjust the purchase price down a little bit once you found what the numbers actually are. And the other thing in terms of the financial verification that is more subjective and where there's going to be more negotiation uh, is going to be what is added back. So in mm. past podcasts, have you talked about add backs? And, and we how have we've talked about add backs, but yeah, just, just for people that haven't heard, the, the, this is things like as the owners taking bonuses or, or, or other, other expenses that really like seller's discretionary income, it could kind of fall under that. But but why don't you talk uh, through addbacks from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, simplest way I can put it would be, would this be necessary if you were to run the business in the future, right? And if it was an expense that was a one-time expense or they took a trip to Hawaii and called it a business expense for their annual meeting, you know, that kind of stuff, you would add it back. There are things that are much more nuanced than that. Maybe they tried a, uh, an advertising uh, strategy for six months it didn't work out well, but maybe it drove some sales and they're trying to add back that entire expense. You know, you got to talk talk with them about that because that probably generated some sales and, and maybe shouldn't be an add back. So some of that stuff is going to be in, in a gray area and you'll just have to, uh, number one, verify that, you know, what they are actually calling an add back is really an add back. Um, and then two is this should be, should this be an add back? So, so that's a big part of that financial verification. What you're trying to do is on one side, you have what they claim their profit and loss statement was, what they're you know, discretionary earnings were over, let's say, the trailing 12 months. And then you you actually verified that from the original sources and say, okay, do these match up? And does this tra does this trace all the way from the original source to their bank accounts, to their tax returns, et cetera? And, and that all of that lines up appropriately. Got it. And so so now getting into bank, bank reports and tax returns, is that still early on or we're doing that closer to, to purchase? Uh, we would do that right in that financial verification financial, yeah, process. Great. Yeah, we would we would compare, again, sort of a side-by-side. -side. We'd have uh, what we verify or what they claimed, what we verified, what their accounting system says, what their bank accounts say, what the tax returns say. Put them all side-by-side -side and say, okay, what doesn't match up, if anything? Got it. Awesome. And then why? You know, you got to have that conversation. Yeah, because there's there's always going to be some things that don't match up, right? Sometimes you're trying to to make your returns look as low as possible from a tax standpoint, and then with addbacks, trying to make the profit look as high as you can for valuation purposes and stuff. So, so seeing uh, evaluating the, the deltas there, and and then is the why sufficient? It doesn't make sense that type of thing. Correct. Okay. Awesome. So financial verification. What comes next in the due diligence process? 
Uh, so usually in parallel with that, we're also looking for any obvious red flags as far as performances on the accounts. And that would be things like, are they following terms of service of their marketing channels and sales channels? Simple things like that. So Amazon, as an example, uh, we're looking at their performance notifications, look for anything egregious where they've had some past account suspensions, listing taking, listings taken down for something other than just a simple complaint from a customer that was sort of a one-off thing. Uh, but but a repeat, you know, kind of violation, uh, any kind of outstanding IP issues, things like that. That this is right where we're looking the for the meteors, right? This is where we're looking for those yes. potential meteors that are about to strike. And these are the ones that would be pretty obvious. Like you see that thing coming a mile away, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm in the Amazon account. I see all this stuff happening, right? And so we're doing that in parallel just to look for any obvious kind of what we we bucket um, due diligence kind of into two main buckets uh, as far as our process. There's also legal tax, things like that, that we don't focus on. But for us, we talk about financial um, due diligence and commercial due diligence. And the commercial is more when you're looking at the performance of the overall uh, business, not necessarily just the financials. So on that commercial piece, we, we do a quick run through to look for any obvious meteors or red flags, um, you know, in parallel with that. Once we finish the process of, of the PL, then we're getting more deep into understanding the supply chain, as an example, um, you know, how to like are, are the what are the supplier agreements look like? Um, are the are the prices trending good or bad over time? You know, in the sales channels, we're looking at um, what is the performance of each individual SKU? Is it profitable? How has, uh, for instance, are they consistent with launching new SKUs? And, and are we seeing that in the data or are some of the SKUs? that used to perform really well starting to, to tail off, that could indicate competitors are nipping at their heels. You know, really getting granular in some of those KPIs that you want to see. Look at the yeah, advertising. You want, like, you want to avoid like one-trick ponies, right? A, a business where really all the profit and growth is from one product. They've got all these other ancillary products that aren't really doing anything. You want to yeah. kind of uncover stuff like that. And that can be okay for some buyers. And this is where understanding your buyer is really important. Some of the, for instance, we mentioned briefly the aggregators, you know, they've got so much diversity because they've already got a portfolio, right? If you're an individual buyer and you're just doing a single deal and it's got a one hero skew that generates 80% of the revenue, which is actually pretty common, you know, and it might be one hero, one parent ASIN, right? But then there's like five variations, but it's really the same thing. You yeah. know, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of, of the performance of that particular one. So unless you've got a portfolio to diversify, that would be a pretty risky scenario for an individual buyer just buying a single business. Yeah. So understanding the context of the buyer is obviously important. Okay, awesome. So we got our financial verification, the commercial verification and due diligence. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, that process? For a strategic buyer, somebody who's really sharp on operations, this is also when you're looking at kind of how do we transition these assets and how do we grow this, right? How do we reduce, what are the opportunities to reduce some of the risks that we discovered? Because you're always going to get, you're always going to have risks, right? Uh, so that becomes, every risk is also an opportunity. So, you know, for instance, if you see that there, and, and you're willing to buy a business that has a hero skew, you know, then the question would be, okay, this is a risk. I'm comfortable with it. How do I mitigate that risk? Well, clearly you, you institute a new product launch process or something like that, right? Or, or I plan an additional acquisition or two that, to help diversify you know, in, in a related space or something like that. So, so that, that process of looking for opportunities for improvement, all of that kind of good stuff is also and, part of that. Yeah. Fantastic. So let, let's talk a little bit about valuation tiers. And 
how the buyers there change and how what they're looking for changes. So uh, I know you mainly work on the buyer side of things. This, I think, will apply to, to both buyer and seller to a certain degree, right? I know a lot of people listening, a lot of my friends who own D, uh, D2C brands have just had partial or full exits. And so I think understanding kind of the tier of buyers is useful from a few different perspectives. Uh, so yeah. walk us through that. What are the different tiers and, and how do the buyers change at those different tier levels? Yeah, so so one thing I'll mention just to set this up is um, I always say it's not the price, it's the terms in a deal. So if I said I'll pay you 10 million bucks for your business right now, but I'll pay you a penny a day until it's paid off, you know, that's not very attractive terms, right? But the price may look really good. So <clears throat> this is something that you want to keep in mind with different types of buyers. So we'll talk about this a little bit in terms of common deal structures and, and uh, those kinds of things. So there's kind of cutoffs in terms of purchase price for different types or avatars of buyers. So if you think about from this lens, which is an individual who's out there looking to buy a business, could be a successful entrepreneur, could be somebody, somebody coming out of corporate who's trying to buy a business, who's who doesn't have a lot of experience, but it's just a, a single person trying to do a deal, right? It's pretty common that somebody like that maybe would have up to, let's say, 500K in cash available to put into a deal, right? May, may come out of an IRA, you know, self-directed, or, you know, they might just have had a, an exit on some past business or something like that. But there's not as many people who've got more than 500K laying around, right, that they can go do an, an acquisition. So there kind of ends up being this, this, this segment of acquisitions that are sub 500K, where a lot of those deals get done with a good amount of just cash, right? So these are the cash buyers commonly. Um, sometimes there will be more creative deal structures if the, the buyer is savvy and things like that. But you're commonly going head to head with other cash buyers who are willing to pay a majority upfront, right? They're not getting any loans. They're not in a fund or anything like that. So that type of buyer are commonly going to be more heavy. Okay, so there's the less experienced buyers, these ones are going to be looking for a seller who's willing to either stick around for a little while and train them. That's a big motivator for them. So if you want to just be, you know, sell it and be done and walk away, that's probably not going to be the right buyer for you. Uh, and then you have the more experienced people who, you know, who, who can kind of step in and really run with it. Maybe they've got the infrastructure in place and things like that. So there's definitely a broad spectrum in terms of who they are, but the deal structure is usually, you know, they're kind of competing against one another and it's commonly mostly cash up front if it's like a 250, 300K, whatever type deal, right? The next category I would say is between, let's say 500K and 3 million, 2 million, two, something like that. This is where you get a lot of people who are, um, uh, you know, SBA, they're using SBA loan to do the deal. So commonly, a lot of lenders, they don't do a lot of deals under 500K. So it's less, and, and you're competing against a bunch of cash buyers. So less common that there will be, you know, SBA loans and, and deals in that range. So this is a buyer where for a seller, this is actually pretty attractive. Assuming you can get the deal to go through and your business qualifies for being able to qualify for an SBA loan, because you, you will commonly get 80, 90, or 100% of your cash up front at closing. And so that's really attractive. Like due to the way the SBA uh, rules are, there can't be a lot of really creative deal structuring and things like that. It, it is commonly you get you get your money up front. So that's actually a uh, can be a pretty attractive buyer for you. Um, but what we've seen over the last year or two is we've had multiple billions of dollars raised in in these Amazon aggregators, 
is those buyers are getting a little bit squeezed out by the aggregators who are kind of in that low seven-figure range. <clears throat> um, and so- Because that's a space that aggregators like to play, right? Yes. In, in that one to $2 million valuation range, that, that, that seems to be a sweet spot for at least some of the aggregators I know. And, and yeah, to, to your point, I think you mentioned this in, in prep. What, what was this, like, something like $8 billion dollars raised in the last, it was a quarter? I may be saying that wrong. It was but like, like just, in the last year and a half or something like yeah, that. I don't know yeah. where it's at exactly because, you you know, this is what's publicly been sort of announced. Right. So it's, I mean, it is not a small chunk of change, right? Uh, right. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's money in that range, certainly. Um, so there's kind of that range where you've got a couple main buyer avatars. You've got the people who've got funds who do this all the time, you know, um, and that would be kind of the aggregators and things like that. And then you've got the individual coming less experienced entrepreneur who might be using an SBA loan or something like that. And the reason I have the cutoff around that $2 million mark is the less experienced people commonly can't get approved for more than that, you know, kind of two, two and a half million range, unless they have a bunch of assets. So when you go, but SBA loans can fund deals up to 5 million if you have a pretty experienced acquirer. So there is, there is opportunity even up to 5 million, but um, most of it happens in that kind of you know, $750, million, $2 million range for, for that. So that's an important, you know, buyer to understand. And for a seller, you know, ideally, if you can get more potential buyers to the table, that's going to commonly result in better terms and a better price for you. So knowing who those buyers are, it, it, it's helpful for you. And knowing the trade-offs in terms of deal structures. So for aggregators and the ones that I've been on, um, you know, uh, publicly available talks with and stuff have talked about their deal structures a little bit. Uh, you know, you'll get a good chunk of money up front, but there's commonly going to be some kind of a second bite to the apple where kind of, kind of an earn out yes. type of thing. Yeah, performance. Yeah, based. so there's there's some uncertainty as to what your final result will be uh, there. But w- whereas with an SBA buyer, you know, you don't have a lot of opportunity to get upside in the business that you sell because the SBA has to look at this and say, can they support this loan? Right. And so that's actually a limiting factor on your valuation. An aggregator might be able to get you to a six or seven X, but that's just not feasible for the SBA because of their underwriting, you know, and, and it's not the SBA, it's the bank underwriting uh, requirements to, to uh, qualify for those SBA loans. Got it. Yeah, it totally makes sense. We got the, kind of the 500K to $2 million range. That's your SBA buyers, maybe some aggregators. What's kind of the next tier above that? Yeah, that's where, you know, it starts to get a little big for. SBA loans where they can't fully fund it. Uh, and it starts to get big enough for, let's just say, some of the smaller uh, private equity funds, aggregators, et cetera. Uh, you know, there's a certain scale. You know, if you look at like the private equity world, there's kind of like the lower middle market, which is like, you know, whatever it is, $50 million enterprise value or, or something like that, where once something's earning, let's say, about a million bucks a year in, in uh, EBITDA, that's where a lot of private equity tends to kind of come in. So, but there's this gap there in that range where it, it it's several types of buyers, a little too big for the inexperienced buyers, but it's it's still small enough where some PE is interested and you've got a lot of the funds like the aggregators playing right there. Um, the other kind of category I would say that gets introduced there would be like the fundless sponsors. These are people who kind of find a deal and they raise money. Uh, you know, either after finding the deal or, you know, with a thesis that they, but they don't have the committed capital until they find a deal, right? Um, And so that's a whole nother buyer. And that adds some uncertainty in the deal because, you know, if they don't, if they don't have the money ready to go right now, whereas these aggregators, they've got this all 
you know, it's 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 a war chest that they have to deploy, right? Whereas a, a fundless sponsor, they got to go get the money. And we've seen deals that lasted, you know, in due diligence period uh, prior to closing after the LOI years because they've been yeah. trying to wow. sort out the funding, right? So there, that's that's a more risky category, but you tend to see more creative deal structures and and you know earnouts or certain partnerships or things like that in, in that area as well. Yeah, awesome. Uh, any any advice or tips that you would give uh, from the the buyer's perspective of uh, deal structure, right? And so I know this, this there's like a million ways to structure a deal, and 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 it's got to be you know at least a win win to a certain degree. But are there any kind of guiding principles or, or overarching tips that you would give for how should you be thinking about deal structure? <clears throat> yeah, so I have one rule of thumb with deal structure is be happy with the money you get up front and the rest should be a cherry on top for you. Uh, don't put all of your eggs in the ability for a buyer to uh, execute on whatever growth strategy that they think they can execute on because there's just a lot of uncertainty and there's meteors coming at the business that even they don't see. <laughs> so right. um, yeah. my general rule of thumb is if you if all you got was the money you got at closing, uh, you should be comfortable with that possibility. Not necessarily happy, but comfortable with that being a possibility. So that's a, a first rule of thumb. And, and you want to fight hard for getting that money up front if you're if you're selling. Buyers obviously want to reduce that as much as possible because that helps helps in a lot of ways. So sure. uh, for other general rules of thumb, so from a seller's perspective, if a buyer is offer, offering you something that's based on the performance of the business, you as the seller being confident in that business is a really good sign to the buyer that you know this this business will continue to perform well in the future uh, if you're willing to do something like that. So that's actually you know it can be seen as a positive for buyers. Um, and so you know I, I wouldn't say don't ever be open to that, but the key right. in my mind in terms of like simple principles would be make that earnout as objective as possible and simple as possible. So I've seen structures where it's like, okay, if we, you know, if we if we execute these three strategies and we hit this tier, then your payout goes to this or whatever. Simplest way for me, you know, and that kind of stuff is like just do it on on uh, gross revenue, percentage yeah. of gross revenue. Um, you know, you're not going to be able to control the expenses of the business right. post closing. Yeah, gross so, revenue. That's a number that can't really be fudged, right? Yes. All the other numbers can be fudged or open to interpretation or open to mm-hmm. all kinds of things that maybe outside of your control after the new buyer comes in type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then usually I'll set kind of, um, let's just call it uh, two main, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but just kind of like um, caps, right? So one cap would be a time-based cap. So let's say that the earnout will last no longer than two years and be some percentage of gross revenue during that period, uh, or a cap of a max, right? And as a seller, you may not want to negotiate this, but commonly buyers are going to look for a cap on the valuation. So if they just kill it on that business and they grow it like really, really, really big, uh, and it had nothing to do with anything that you did as the seller, you you know, does it make sense for you to do that? I don't know, but but so commonly there's going to be a time bound. Uh, boundary, yeah, bound, bounding it by time and right. by maximum payout is common. And you as a seller may want to say that I want a minimum number. That might be a minimum monthly payout, a minimum quarterly payout, a min- minimum annual payout that they'll be obligated to if they just totally screw up the business. Got it. So even if things go south, you know, because of the fault of the the new buyer getting that minimum payout uh, agreed right. to, totally makes sense. 
Okay, awesome. Yeah, and, and be careful of anything where it's subjective uh, because yeah. buyer's going to be saying one thing and you have to renegotiate payouts all the time and that, that can be very problematic. It's not a very healthy partnership, which is what, it, what you end up in in that case. Yeah, so, so simple, objective, those are the keys to having good, having those hard conversations, right? Because we're trying to protect against the what ifs that are bad, right? What if things go south? You want to have things clear and objective and simple uh, so you can hopefully move forward in a way that's uh, less bad than, than yeah. the alternatives. Uh, yeah, so and that's I, awesome. I would say just commonly the other deal structure you see a lot of, two, two common ones. One is a holdback. And really that's kind of like a, a milestone payment. It's usually more structured when maybe an asset has been transferred or a key employee has stuck around for a period of time or you've provided a... Uh, standard operating procedures manual. And that's stuff that can kind of come after closing in some cases. Maybe after three months, you get an additional flat payout, um, but you are incentivized to make sure those, those checkbox items are done. So that's another common one. And then the other one would be a seller financed sort of structure where it's just like a, a seller note, right? Where you're, you're basically becoming a lender to the buyer and you get structured payouts not, de not dependent on the performance of the business. Got it. Okay, really helpful stuff. Good stuff there. Uh, let's talk. We've talked a little bit about aggregators so far, and you know the eight billion raised over the last year and a half, or whatever the number is. It's, it's pretty astronomical. And, and I know some some different um, aggregators, some of the, the the owners of of these aggregators, and you know some of them are sitting on four hundred million up to a billion dollars individually. You know for for this group. And so they need to be buying assets, right? They need to be going out there and acquiring brands. If they just sit on that money, they're not getting any kind of a return. So I know one of the impacts of aggregators is, is we are seeing multiples rise, right? And especially with the, the e-commerce COVID bump that we've had recently, you know, those, those e-commerce multiples are definitely on the rise. But talk, talk about aggregators a little bit and how you think they've impacted the landscape of, of M&A when it comes to uh, D2C brands. Yeah, so one thing to that may not be obvious, and I'm, I don't own an aggregator. I have no interest in any. Um, I do have many clients who are aggregators. So, you know, I, I obviously I'm, I'm not speaking from my own personal experience running an aggregator or anything like that. But from what I understand, uh, many of these aggregators, a big chunk of their funding comes in the form of debt. So that is something to keep in mind in terms of, um, you know, how much of a hole this is burning in their pocket, right? If you if you raise an equity round, the return you get on that, the speed at which you need to do it might be, uh, you know, much more of a hole burning in your pocket, whereas debt can be deployed and you don't typically have many expenses uh, to to uh, until you deploy that debt. So I think that's something to, to keep in mind. But regardless, you know, their motivation, my understanding Commonly, what the what the play would be if you look at Thrasios and Thir and Perch and things like that, they do multiple funds of rounding with a uh, multiple multiple rounds, rounds, of, rounds funding. of funding. I'm with you. I, I heard what you meant. <laughs> yeah, and um, so every time their valuation should go up, and the best way to drive their valuation up is to generate more revenue and show revenue growth in the business. And the key driver to that revenue growth is going to be their acquisitions. So <clears throat> the more they can acquire. And, and show revenue growth, the better their next rounding, uh, round of funding is going to end up being. So it's a big motivator for them and uh, to deploy that capital, right? They also have to temper that a bit with, you know, is this a long-term sustainable business? Because at some point, the shoe is going to drop, right? And um, 
if they're just being reckless. So, so there, you know, there are aggregators who will pass up on deals and things like that, but for a good brand, for a good business, you know, they, they are aggressively acquiring and, you know, we're seeing five, six X multiples not being uncommon these days times, you know, right. when you used to, it was like th- three was kind mm-hmm. of the average, right. For e-commerce brands or maybe even less than that, but yeah, five to six is not uncommon right now. Yeah. And in fact, a few years ago, Amazon companies were actually typically valued less than a, um, uh, like a similar Shopify based company or e-commerce company off Amazon because of that Amazon risk. Um, but you know, this new, that's flipped now, you know, like it's, it's interesting. Amazon business is actually valued higher commonly than, than some of these other e-com off Amazon businesses. So, um, yeah. So what's, what's that doing to the space? So number one is everybody's businesses got a whole lot more valuable. (laughs) Um, just if you look at what your business is worth, right. Just the equity component of it, uh, assuming that you if you did nothing other than keep your business stable, your business became, you know, two or three X, times your, your uh, trailing EBITDA more valuable over the last couple of years. So that's a clear thing. Uh, two is it increased your liquidity. Uh, and what that means is you can sell your business and take chips, chips off the table um, much more easily than you could p- potentially have in the past. And <clears throat> so that's another factor, right? And so there's, I mean, that to me, it's it's the ability to sell these companies has is, is almost becoming... Um, you know, such an easy path, right? Yeah. And what what I think will happen over the next little while, I have a couple sort of simple predictions. One is those who are really good at new product launch type companies will have an opportunity. To, and, and there are people that just love that, like the starting the new brand and kicking it off and launching products and kind of incubating something. This is a major opportunity for them to spend two years doing that on a brand and then turn around and sell that business and then go do it again, right? And turn around and sell it. So whether or not that window will continue to be open over time, I think that's that's an area that that is super super interesting. Um, the other way yeah, that one, I mean, one quick thing I'll chime in on that just to kind yeah. of clarify, I think people are probably connecting the dots, but just in case they're not, you know, now if I'm getting a five to six x multiple on my business, where before it was like a two and a half to three, now I can sell eighty percent of my business, seventy percent of my business, maybe get all that cash up front that I was expecting before. But I get to retain some and maybe get that that second exit. I have several friends that have done that that very thing, uh, yeah, and it's and, pretty attractive right now to get some of those chips off the table. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me to my second point, which is the aggregators. The reason your friends were able to get that second bite to the apple, which is commonly what it's called in the industry, um, or that earnout or whatever it is, is because these aggregators have really gotten good at operating. But the 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 ones that are that are uh, you know, really building the great teams and the brands and the, you know, kind of the machine of being able to take a brand that that maybe has some room for improvement that's not following all the best practices and be able to put that through their machine and make it earn more, right? And solve any kind of challenges with funding inventory, as an example, that might be slowing down your ability to grow the business, right? That all gets taken out of there and their ability to grow these brands has, has uh, you know, gotten very, very good for, for many of these aggregators who are who have been in the game for a little while. So what that means is everybody else who's competing on Amazon will need to also up their game. Um, and they will need to, like, it's no longer, you know, just one single product image will be sufficient. Like, you need great video, you need great photography, you need great listing, you need great advertising. You know, if you're being inefficient in any of those areas, 
aggregators who are buying you will see that as a good thing. But um, but if you're just straight competing and you're trying to hold your business, you know, just know that that you got to be on your game, right? I think that's another one. For sure, yeah. As you, if you're retaining your brand and going head to head versus aggregators, yeah, you need to be really good. You know, the days are gone of just putting a product up on Amazon and living off that Amazon traffic. We have to think like merchants and like retailers and and like brand builders, right? We're building brands, not just uh, hawking a few products on on Amazon. And so that that's a big difference. Uh, well, cool. So so we're about out of time. Uh, Chris has been absolutely fantastic. Tell us a little bit about uh, Rhodium Weekend, and then I want to hear more about Centurica as well and any, any resources you want to point people to. But let, let's start first with Rhodium Weekend. So you started that because being an entrepreneur and being in, you know, acquiring digital business is lonely. So what, what do you guys do at Rhodium Weekend? Yeah, so I just basically created the event that I would want to attend. Um, and so it looks sort of like a mastermind, sort of like a conference where there are speakers, but the speakers are commonly the attendees and they're sharing their case studies of real in the trenches experiences and things like that. We do a lot of roundtable discussions, a lot of fun activities at the event. So we went curling as a group last year as an example. So it's uh, you know, it's intended to be something where it's that, is, that is the one Olympic sport where you know I've seen the memes where it's like the the Olympic team for curling looks like just a bunch of dads who were bored one weekend and decided <laughs> yeah, they, to join. They like the to drink a lot of beer and yeah, exactly. play on the ice. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. But it's an awesome sport. So um, yeah, so so it's really just a you know intended to be a, a group for people who want to learn from others who are in the trenches and find people who are a few steps ahead of them. Like you know, for instance, for you, Brett. You know, you, you may want to find somebody who's already bought an e-com business and they've, they've done that five times or whatever, and you can learn from their mistakes and not have to make all the same ones and get that mentorship. And then the cool thing about Rhodium and the culture I've created is one of paying it forward to one another. So you, then you'll be able to take your lessons learned, uh, whether it's related to that or re- related to what you do at, at OMG, and share those to the people who are a few steps behind you, right? So it's kind of this virtuous cycle of, of everybody's, um, you know, helping one another and, and contributing, sharing best practices and things like that. So when I curate the group, I meet everybody before and invite them in. And just, you know, we have our typical members anywhere from top line six figures to low nine figures with our average member kind of being low to mid seven. Uh, top, you know, again, top line annual gross. <clears throat> and we have different business models so you can kind of learn from one another. So e-com, content, SaaS, uh, services. Some media and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Love it. So, Rhodium Weekend, R H O D I U M weekend.com. So, check that out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Centurica as well, because, you know, as, as we're getting into this, like as we do due diligence, like we're, we're, we're working with you, we're not, we're not going to try to do all that on, on our own. I think that's just, that's silly. Um, talk a little bit about Centurica and how you guys work. And then, do you guys have any, any resources or guides or anything you guys point people to kind of uh, in the early stages? Yeah. Uh, so, I'll answer the last piece first, which is resources. On our website, we have a free service called the Market Watch. And what it is, you can go to our website and see most of the brokered listings that are on the market currently, be able to sort them by business model, price, multiple, et cetera, set up email alerts if you want. That's great for people who are looking to kind of get a feel for the market, what's going on right now, and to kind of stay on top of stuff when it comes up on the market in one place. Still encourage you to go to each broker as well. Uh, so yeah, that's, and, and unbiased opinion, Joe Valley was like, hey, if you guys are looking for deals, you just got to get on the list, watch deals. It's curated. It's just yeah. part of the process. You need to do it. Yeah. And we have a team who kind of goes through manually and categorizes them and um, checks them and stuff like that. So um, so that's a free service. And then as far as what we do for services, you know, we um, we have things, we try to make things as 
simple as possible with like a flat fee based uh, structure. And it's kind of based on the size of the acquisition you're doing. We look for clients who are multiple, you know, acquirers. So rather than seeing you once and then not seeing you again for five years, if you're, if you're doing, you know, a few deals a year or one a month or multiple a month, you know, that's, that's who we kind of have been specializing in helping lately. Okay. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been absolutely fascinating. I was excited already about doing deals and buying businesses, and now I've got more information at my disposal and more resources. And so uh, we turned that up a notch just a little bit. So appreciate it. Nice job. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everybody. And as always, thank you for tuning in. And we would love to hear from you. What would you like to hear more of on the show? Give us topic suggestions. Also, if you have not done so, would love that five-star review on iTunes. If you feel that the show is worthy, uh, that review does help other people discover the show. And with that, until next time, thank you for listening. At OMG Commerce, we accelerate growth for some of the most loved brands in e-commerce, like Boom, Native, True Earth, Overtone, and dozens more. If your Google and YouTube ad performance isn't where it should be, if you're struggling with Performance Max, or if you're not scaling like you'd like on Amazon, then we have two ways to help. One, we have amazing resources that are free for the taking, like our top YouTube ads guide with lots of examples, our PMAX checklist, or our Amazon DSP roadmap, plus many more. Or hit us up for a free strategy session. So go on over to omgcommerce.com and click on Let's Talk to request that free strategy session, or click on Resources and Guides and pick the guide that's right for you. And now back to the show.